Hello, everybody. If I haven't greeted you yet, uh, yeah, it's uh, good to be back in Map. Uh, if you can't see that, you, I hope you'll find it helpful because it took me a while to put it together, so I hope you find it helpful. And Dave's very kindly um, reproduced some notes. The notes pretty much follow this, um, so they're just, just some reminders, and there's a bit of additional material in there as well. Um, so there's, there's some, yeah, some other material which I hope you'll, you'll find helpful just on the structure of the books that make up the Pentateuch, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, so uh, you will, hopefully there'll be some time for questions a bit later on, but we'll, just, we'll get started and then uh, we'll see where we end up. So let's pray and ask that God helps us. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, thanks for gathering us together. Uh, thank you for your word, uh, which we believe is inspired by God. Uh, and is useful and so we ask that you would instruct us this afternoon and help us to or to delight in your word and to to you know gain skills that will help us to be uh, useful and and faithful and uh, obedient readers of your word we pray these things in Jesus name amen now before we get started on the Pentateuch I just thought I'd take a few moments just to talk about the Bible itself uh this is probably material, there's probably stuff that you're already very well aware of, but excuse me for just backtracking a little bit, because I think it's important. Uh, we live in a world now where the Bible is not uh, revered. Um, if people acknowledge it as an authority at all, they'll say it's one of a number of different ways of looking at life. If, you were to, if people say, well, why do you believe that? And you say, well, the Bible says it. Uh, don't don't expect most people in the world that you live in to, to think that that's a sound reason for believing anything because we live in a world now that would tend to say that the Bible's been discredited and it's an ancient book and uh, we live in a modern world and, and it was dealing with things a long time ago and all the rest of it. Uh, C.S. Lewis coined a phrase, chronological snobbery, uh, and what he meant was it's this idea that inevitably things are getting better and better. And so he says chronological snobbery says well people used to believe that but now we know so much more we can afford to leave that go and uh, there's the the belief that you know we're at this sort of uh, we're nearing the peak of human attainment and uh, the stuff that the ancients believe just can't possibly have any bearing on what we need to know whereas I would say uh, something quite different so the, the bible claims of itself in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the Bible never attempts to prove that it's inspired. In the NIV, the translation of that is all scripture is inspired by God, but it's literally God-breathed. God breathed out his word. Um, I think there's, I, I am absolutely convinced that that statement is true and I'd like to think that if I ceased to be convinced of that, that I'd stop preaching uh, because I've got nothing to say if, if I don't believe that the Bible is God's word uh, and, and I'd just be wasting your time and I'd be a fraud if I thought something other than that. But I believe that there's plenty of evidence for the Bible being a divine product, a divine product that is, uh, is perfect. And, it, and when the Bible speaks, it speaks truly. But all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. In other words, every part of the Bible has a use and you can put it to work. 
Now, when Paul wrote those words, the New Testament didn't exist. So for him, Scripture is what we call the Old Testament. Um, And so there are some remote and difficult parts of the Old Testament that lots of people skip and just avoid them. And everybody makes jokes about pledging to read through the Bible in a year and getting stuck in Leviticus. But the fact is, one day we'll meet God and he may well ask us, well, why didn't you take Leviticus more seriously? Yeah, it's just too easy to skip. But this is a gift of God. We need to be, you know, we need to be careful that we regard the, the, the word that God's given us with the same measure of affection with which he gave it. He gave this to us for our good. How many times have you given a gift and, and it wasn't well received? Has that ever happened? Doesn't it happen in Mafra? but imagine giving a gift to someone and they just disregarded it or treated it with less than the respect that you thought it deserved well the bible is amongst god's gifts to us and i think we need to look after it but it's useful for teaching which sort of sets the 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 right tone it's for rebuking in other words telling us off when we need a telling off correcting steering us back onto the path and training training is a beautiful word it means to for something to take the shape so you train a fruit tree, or you, you train a, a tomato vine, and it takes the shape of the vine. Um, so training means to shape and, and to put something into an orderly sort of a pattern. And it's also that people like us can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the Bible's God's word, and I believe that means it's of enduring significance. I have no trouble believing that a God capable of creating the universe is capable of expressing himself clearly. To me, that perfectly compatible um the, the universe is a vast and a wonderful place a, a god who's capable of that could he have made his intentions clear sure i think he has um and so therefore it doesn't go out of date even though it's very old uh but it is ancient and we need to reckon with that which means that we'll need to think hard about how we can understand in 21st century mafra words that were first written several thousand years ago to a context which is quite different from ours so the bible was written over it was written by at least 40 authors over a period of about 1500 years now that makes it unlike any other book uh you know most authors spend a few years writing a book if it's a detailed one but to assemble a book over 1400 years and have 40 different people involved in its production that, that makes the Bible quite a different book and yet there's this coherence to it that I think could only have come about because its ultimate author is God. Um, now we talk about genre, is that a word you've heard before? It just means style or classification. Um, so somebody might say to you, what sort of genres of music do you like? I was, I was somewhere not long ago actually and I had my mandolin with me and that's what I... Uh, it might have been down here in the park. This kid comes along, he says, what, what genre do you play? So I tried to explain, you know. Uh, but he, he, didn't, he, you know, he didn't say, what do you call your music? He said, what genre do you play? Wow, you know. Uh, well, anyway, you go to a library and, uh, of course, as you look around the library, all the books aren't cluttered together. They're in, very, they're in a variety of different genres. So if you want to read about science, then you go to the science section. If you want to read about technology, you go to the technology section and so on. Well, the Bible features many different genres. Now, in the same way that if, you, if you're wanting a laugh and you want to read a, a comedy novel, then you know to expect something different than if you read a history book, 
right? You may not go to a history book expecting it to make you laugh, right? So you bring different skills to the reading. If you're reading the sports section of the newspaper, that will require a different set of skills than if you're reading the finance section. Uh, I never read the finance section because I simply don't understand it. Uh, but the Bible features many different genres. So there's narrative history. Narrative simply means storytelling. Uh, genealogies, which, you know, the history of, like, family trees, chronicles, laws, poetry, proverbs, prophetic oracles, riddles, drama, biographies, and so on. There's a lot of different sorts of writing in the Bible. Now, when I first went to Ridley College to study theology, they were teaching us about this and my first inclination was to say hang on it's all God's word it's all true but then it took me a little adjusting things can be true but they might be expressed in different ways so for instance when you read the the proverbs don't expect proverbs to put truth in the same way that say Paul would when he writes a letter right so you've got to bring different skills to your reading as you go uh, so some interpretation hints. When you're reading the Bible, it's always good to have a few things in mind. The first thing is, we didn't receive it. This was written to other people who took it down and who kept it and who copied it. So other people thought, these things are so important, we will keep them and we'll pass them on, and we are in their debt. But we've got to first ask, what was it about these words that struck the original audience as being important Um, we need to think about the historical context if we can work that out so what was happening in the world of the person who wrote it and what need drew it out of that writer for the people who first read it or heard it bearing in mind that most people who received the bible couldn't read in the earliest days and therefore they had to hear it Um, so that 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 changes things a bit too so we talk about the occasion and purpose if you read a good commentary about any of the books in the bible they'll attempt to say this is what caused this book to be written right why would genesis have been written for instance who who first received genesis well moses we believe we'll get back to that in a minute moses we believe wrote it but who first received it israel who's israel bunch of released slaves on their way to the promised land what do they need to know they need to know who are we we've just had 400 years in egypt we're slaves which god is releasing us which god's calling us on because they've been surrounded by hundreds of gods they had baboon gods and crocodile gods and cat gods and sun and moon gods and all the rest which god so moses said oh the god that created heaven and earth oh so that's the original audience you know it's a good thing to ask why was this written down first uh, corinthians chapter 10 verse 11 paul is actually talking about the events of, that we find recorded in the book of numbers where they were wandering through the wilderness and he says of them these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come now gordon fee and douglas stewart have written a very helpful introductory book to the bible called how to read the bible for all it's worth and they've got another one called how to read the bible book by book and they say based on that verse they say this god's word to us was first of all his word to them and so they say he they say it will never mean to us what it couldn't have meant to them does that make sense so we've got to work out what did it mean to them why did they keep it what was the point 
and that will guide us in what it means to us. A couple of years ago, I was preaching at Pakenham, and uh, the week after, this lady came up to me. She said, you know, last week when um, you said we're all victims of our circumstances, and I said, I never said that. And her husband chimes in, well, it doesn't really matter what you said, it's more what she thought you said. I said, hang on. I said, I'm not going to be held responsible for her bad hearing. Uh, we first of all got to work out what did Moses mean for those people. And once we've worked that out, then we'll be able to work out what it means for us. But there's more to it than that. We need to work out, because the, the Bible is one book in two sections, Old Testament and New Testament, we need to work out how it is that ancient texts have been fulfilled in Christ because that will guide us in our present meaning. Here's a question we need to ask. Why do we... I'm assuming that there's no Jews here, right? Why do we, as 21st century Australian people, non-Jewish, why do we have a high regard for words that were first of all addressed to God's people, the Jews? They've become ours through Jesus. So we have become worshippers of the God who revealed himself to Israel because we've said we have come under the rule of Israel's king, that's Jesus. And so ancient Israel's words have become ours through Jesus. They've been fulfilled in Christ. So there's the world of the Bible. Uh, it's what scholars call the ancient Near East. So, um, you know, the, the world of, of, of Canaan, that's what it was originally called. Did, you know, we, we talk about Palestine. That, that's not what they called it much back in that. You know why the, the place is called Palestine? Because the Romans couldn't say Philistine. And so it's the Roman way of saying, well, the Philistines lived here. So it's the country of the Philistines. Uh, but you've got Egypt, you've got uh, the land of Canaan, then uh, over there to the, uh, to the east you've got what was the Assyrian and then the Babylonian empires and later on the Persian. And over here to the west you've got the Greek peninsula. And a bit, bit further on from that is, um, is the Italian peninsula. But then you've got the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Mediterranean is Latin for the sea in the middle of the earth. Terra, like your terracotta pots, that means earth. Medi means middle, so it's the sea in the middle of the world because that used to be the Roman Empire. They had territory in Asia, Europe and Africa. Um, so the Bible's overall message, I think you can sum it up. Uh, what's the Bible about? God is gracious, graciously working out his solution to the problem of human sin and is rescuing a people for his glory through his son, the Lord Jesus. So the Bible is a problem that confronts the human condition. What's wrong with us? We've sinned and we put ourselves out of step with God. Will God write us off? No, he will rescue. How will he rescue? Through his son. And the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 onwards is the story of what God's going to do to rescue a people for himself, uh, having created a good world. Uh, we could say that the, whole, that the overall story of the Bible is all about Jesus because he himself said that. So Luke 24, this is a really important chapter for understanding the whole Bible. After he's been raised from the dead, on two occasions Jesus explains his relationship to what we call the Old Testament. And so the, the first of those is with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. You know, remember that story? Uh, so they didn't recognise him as they were walking along and then when they broke bread with him they realised this is Jesus. But along... In, in there and then later on he speaks to the, the 12 as they're gathered or the, the disciples as they're gathered in the upper room and he says much the same but we'll just have the one uh, beginning with Moses and all the prophets he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself 
later on we're told he opened their minds to understand the scripture so that's why we need to pray before we read the bible we need to pray that jesus will help us by his spirit to understand the word which is really about him but notice Moses and the prophets, that's like saying the beginning and the end of the Old Testament because Moses wrote the first five books and the last books of the Old Testament were the prophets. So he's saying, it's all about me. right? So Jesus is the key to help us to understand the Old Testament. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, Paul says, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So the promises in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. How are we going so far? Is that all good? Any questions or we press on? Righto, introduction to the Pentateuch. Right, um, Pentateuch is a Greek way of saying a five-volume book or five scrolls because each of the books that, that make up the Pentateuch, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, would each have occupied a, a separate scroll back in the days before books were invented. Um, so Pentateuch just means five-volume or five scrolls. Uh, sometimes it's called the Torah which is a Hebrew way of saying the law sometimes it's called the five books of Moses or you might just like to call it Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy right? but for convenience we talk about the Pentateuch and it means five books is that okay? It's just a technical term but in, Eng- in our English Bible the books that make up the Pentateuch all have names that come from Greek Now, we know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but uh, in the first century, in the third century BC, the Greek language had spread all the way around the Mediterranean region, and so it was thought wise to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And that Greek translation became known as the Septuagint, because the story was that 70 scholars collaborated on this translation of Hebrew into Greek. That's probably not accurate, but that doesn't matter. That's, that's, we call it the Septuagint. Sometimes you'll see it written in Latin letters LXX. If ever you see that in a book, that means the Septuagint. And that means the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And that is the version that the earliest New Testament writers use. So when Paul refers to the Old Testament, he's usually quoting from the Septuagint. But the names of the Bible in English that we've got are English translations of those Greek words. Is this getting confusing yet? So why do we have Genesis as the name of the the first book? It's a Greek word. Exodus, Greek word. Leviticus, Greek word. uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, they're all... Well, Numbers is actually an English translation of a Greek word, but we'll get to that in a minute. So we believe that Moses mostly wrote the the, the, the Pentateuch. Uh, but there's some parts he couldn't have written. Uh, the one, the part describing his death in Deuteronomy 34, most unlikely that Moses wrote that. Uh, but there's a bit in Numbers where he's described as being the humblest man that ever lived. Bit hard to imagine someone writing that about themselves, right? I'm more humble than you, Chris, right? How's that going to sound, <laughs> right? Uh, So it's unlikely that Moses wrote that about himself, but yet we have the authority of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Matthew 8 and 19, um, Jesus says that Moses wrote those books, so I'll go with that. But there's probably some bits that he didn't write. Um, So Genesis, just a quick flick through the the five books. Uh, 
Genesis is the book of beginnings because that's what Genesis means. We've got words that have gene in it like genetics and, and genes. It means the building blocks. It means the foundation of the origins. So Genesis is a book of beginnings. But we could also summarise its message as uh, portraying a longing for Eden. Now, I've got all these things in the notes, so you'll be able to look at these at home if you want. But Genesis starts in Eden, and very quickly Eden is in the past... But the rest of the book of Genesis is like a longing to return to Eden. How do we get back there? But Genesis shows us the origins of the world. It shows us the origins of humans and of sin and of redemption. And it shows us the origins of Israel. Um, Now, the world, we, we read in the beginning, God. How did the world begin? God did it. How did he do it? He spoke it into being. We're not given detail. We're not told the processes that God used. He just did it. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, we're told that God looked at all that he'd made, and what was it? It was very good. Now, every other day of creation was good, but the sixth day on which he created humans, it's very good. Now, what that means is it's entirely fit for purpose. It's just what God wanted it to be, right? So when God created, everything was as it should be. Um, and so we can say that this, that God, who's named as the Lord in capital letters, which means we're talking about Yahweh. Yahweh is the God who revealed himself to Israel. He's the self-existent creator of the whole world, right? Where did God come from? He's just always been, right? Now, there'll be people you meet that will say, hell, how does that work? And the answer is we don't know. But come up with a better explanation. Are we here? Or am I dreaming this? We're here, right? Uh, I can't explain that God is self-existent because I know that I'm not. But I can't think of a better explanation because we are here and that's a settled fact, right? Um, But every scientist will tell you that the universe had a beginning. It hasn't always been. It had a beginning. And I believe, we believe that that God did it, uh, but there's no account of his beginnings. But the things that are created, things like the sun, the moon, the stars and the sea, they were all worshipped as gods in the cultures around about and especially in Egypt. And so it's, it's important to know that God made all those things. Those things aren't themselves gods. So there's three examples from Egypt. There's Ra, the sun god. There's Khonsu, the moon god. And there's Thoth, a baboon, who is the wisdom god. And he's holding in his hands the sea and an all-seeing eye for wisdom, right? Now that was the, that was the version of the cosmos that Egypt had and that Israel was rescued from Uh, they believed that all of those different elements was divine but the bible story is that there is one God and that one God created all those things and that's an important uh, lesson for everyone to learn because you'll still meet people who say I know I'm divine you're divine the uh, the chair's divine the you know the trees have got divinity in them no the, the the bible says no we're not there's only one divine being and that's God and so Genesis describes uh, the form and the content and the purpose of creation so Genesis 1 tells us about the form and the content of creation so God created conditions in that that he then filled up Um, but Genesis 2 tells us about creation's purpose now it's very interesting there's only two chapters given over to creation in the whole bible so clearly that wasn't the emphasis of Moses when he wrote it Uh, he assumed that God did it and once we've moved from that 
we get on with the rest of the story. Uh, but in particular, on that last day, humans were created. And so we read in chapter 1, 26 and 27 that humans were created in God's image. Now that is really important for the rest of the story because what that means is humans matter to God. Now if you look at the creation myths of the cultures around about, humans are almost always portrayed in a very bad light and the creation of humanity is almost always revealed as an accident. In fact, the earth is shown to be a bad thing. But the Bible shows that the earth is created by an eternal God and who says it's very good. And then he says that the human creation is made in his image, which gives real value to human beings. I'm not sure that any other worldview has a, an explanation for why people matter. Now, people say, oh, you know, I, I believe in the rights of everyone. Well, this, it hasn't worked out particularly well in history. But in reading the Bible, we have a foundation. Why do people matter? Because they're made in God's image. Uh, so the humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. They're not an afterthought or a cosmic accident. But what does it mean to be created in God's image? I, I want to just dwell on this for a bit because this is just, we're scouting through a lot of stuff. But the idea of being created in God's image uh, probably has something to do with, with the word image. Uh, an image is another way of saying a statue or a representation. Now, this statue of the Assyrian, and Hadad, Assyrian governor Haydad Yissi was found in 1979. That's in the Damascus Museum in Syria. And it has an inscription on its base that says, in the image and likeness of the king. Now, we know that ancient empires, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, they ruled large areas of land. And they didn't have newspapers and they didn't have TV and radio. They certainly didn't have the internet. If they wanted to remind the people that they captured and conquered who was in charge they put a statue of the ruler and so wherever you looked there were different towns would have statues that said you are in Assyrian territory you are under the rule of Hadad Yissi and so they put not the man himself but an image and a likeness of him all throughout the empire to say you are in occupied territory so to say that humans have been made in God's image is to say that we are his representatives. We don't look like God, because God has no appearance, but we've been put here as images and likenesses of God, as his representatives throughout his creation, which means that we've got a special job to do and a special role to play. But to, call, to talk about people being made in the image of God is to use language of, of it's priestly language, it's a kingly term too. So what's humanity's purpose? Have a look here. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. That makes Adam sound like a gardener, doesn't it? Right? No weeds yet, but it makes Adam sound like a gardener to work it and to take care of it. But the only other times in the Pentateuch when those words that are translated work and take care are used is in relation to the, tab the tabernacle. And so if you read in the book of Numbers, chapter 8, bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. Now that's the same word as work because minister is just another way of saying work. But this sounds more religious, doesn't it? There's no suggestion here that these priests are gardeners. What are they doing? They're working in the tabernacle. What else do they do? They shall keep guard. 
over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, right? Keep guard is exactly the same word as take care. Now, it doesn't sound like they're gardeners. It sounds like they're priests. And so if Genesis 2 was translated with the Lord took the man and put him in the the Garden of Eden to minister in it and to keep guard of it, we would say Adam is being described as a priest. Now, here's one of the things that we need to get in mind. The way that the Garden of Eden is described... And then what we learn about sacred spaces like the tabernacle and the temple, Eden is described in words that make it sound like the original temple. This is a holy place because God lives there. And Adam's job was to minister in it and to keep guard of it, to make sure that it wasn't made impure by unclean elements entering. And where do things go wrong? When a serpent shows up. And the serpent is the archetypical unclean animal. And so Adam was the original priest in a holy place where humans were living in relationship with God. So as what was humanity's purpose? As God's human earthly representative, Adam was to act as a priest, to serve God and maintain the garden as a holy place or a sanctuary, which was fit for God's presence according to his laws. So where was Eden? Well, we don't know. But we do have... Uh, the names of four rivers two of which we're very aware of the Tigris River and the Euphrates River they're still there in the ancient uh, Middle East and uh, people wonder was Eden in the north in the south we don't know and I don't think it's that important some people have gone out trying to find it but I'm not sure that it'll ever happen but we do know that the Tigris and the Euphrates River are are named rivers and they're still flowing today Um, the book of Genesis tells about the origin of sin Uh, which we call the fall in Genesis 3. uh, The serpent slithers in and says, did God really say? So that's the original sin, uh, to question God's word. Uh, And Eve saw that the fruit was desirable. She thinks nothing wrong with a little nibble of that. She shares it with Adam, who blames her for all the trouble they get into. But the the real significance of that is that Adam was to be the representative of humans, the priestly representative. And so the effect of his sin transmitted itself to all of his descendants which includes us and so this tendency to rebel and do things our way is written into our bloodlines Um, but not only do we find the origin of origin of sin described in genesis we also see the origin of redemption so the big question as as the bible unfolds is how can sin be undone what happened to adam and eve after they'd given in what, what happened then? They were banished, right? And two cherubim were set to guard the way back into the tree of life. Now, cherubim are terrifying angels, right? You might look at your beautiful grandchildren and say, aren't they lovely little cherubs? And you're using the wrong word, right? Cherubim were terrifying. Uh, but the way back to the tree of life was guarded. Access was denied to God's presence, so the question is, is God going to leave it at that or is he going to do something about it? And so the, you could boil it down to this, can we ever get back to Eden? Well, in chapter 3, verse 15, a very important verse, uh, God says to the serpent that one of Eve's descendants is going to crush his head. And so that becomes a glimmer of hope in a dark universe 
how will evil be ended? A human is going to put an end to the reign of the serpent. We're not told yet that the serpent is the devil or Satan. We have to wait till Revelation for that. But we, do, we can understand that he's an evil personality in an otherwise perfect environment. But he's, he's, uh, he's a trespasser. So we read about the origin of Israel. So God promised Abraham. Genesis 3.15, very important verse. Genesis 12.1-3, absolutely critically important. You need to lock these in your head. If you want to understand the Bible, you've got to get Genesis 3.15. The Bible is the search for the serpent crusher. Genesis 12.1-3, Abraham is promised several things. Um, God makes a covenant with him or a binding agreement. Uh, and the idea of that is that God is going to restore his blessing to the world after the fall's devastation. So who will be the human that crushes the serpent? He's going to be a descendant of Abraham. Because Abraham is promised three things. He's promised... Uh, I thought I had this written. I thought I had it down. No, I don't. He's promised three things. He's promised descendants. He's promised land. And he's promised that one of those descendants will restore God's blessing to earth. Blessing is the opposite of cursing. The world's put under a curse. How will it be undone? A human descendant of Abraham is going to restore God's blessing to the world okay the rest of the bible is the search for the human descendant of Eve descended from Abraham who will restore God's blessing and so we want to get back to Eden how will it happen only through a descendant of Abraham um, so Genesis 1 to 11 we call that the primeval history Genesis 12 to 50 is the history of the patriarchs the founders of the nation of Israel because Abraham's descendants become the means through which God will bless the world. The main focus of the book of Genesis is on chapters 12 to 50. Uh, if, you th- if you think about it, only two chapters are given over to creation, and yet 13 chapters are given over to Joseph. Given that they had a short amount of scroll to write on, they had to be very economical with their words. If they've devoted 13 chapters to, to Joseph and two to creation, what do you think is weighing more heavily on Moses' mind as he writes? He's taking it as read that God is the creator of everything, Yahweh is the creator. Okay, let's move on to the rest of the story. It's important, but the dominant theme of Genesis is the, the origins of Israel. Anyway, book two in the Pentateuch is Exodus. Uh, Exodus is a Greek word which means the way out, or the road out. And so Exodus describes what could be called a return to Eden. Um, It talks about God's miraculous rescue of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and the commencement of their journey to Canaan. God gives laws to help them to live safely. Uh, Remember that Adam and Eve were booted out of the holy sanctuary of Eden because they broke God's law. Israel's being rescued from slavery to be taken into a land that sounds like a new Eden and they'll only be able to live there with Yahweh if they keep his law. And so the question is, will they? And then you get to Leviticus, uh, which is a Greek way of saying the Levitical book. The Levites were the priests of the Old Testament. And this is all about approaching the house of God. And so the content of Leviticus is the laws by which Israel has to live if they're to be able to stay in the promised land. So how can sinful people live with a holy God? That's the the role of the book of Leviticus. Now here's a little way of thinking about it. Uh, 
you're all familiar with close-up photography and wide-angle photography. Uh, Exodus is like a close-up. It's like a wide-angle. And so it gives big pictures of the laws. But Leviticus is like a close-up. Right? How is a sinful people going to survive with a holy God? They need to pay very careful attention to how they live. So numbers... Uh, Numbers is the English way of saying the Greek word arithmoi, which means the reference is to the fact that twice in the book of Numbers there's censuses taken of how many people there are in the nation of Israel. And so this is the struggle to return to the land of Eden. And so it describes their 40 years in the wilderness. Why did it take them 40 years to get from Egypt to Canaan? Because none of that original generation is going to... Um, right, the evil gener- what did the evil generation do? They didn't uh, acknowledge uh, God. Yeah. So God says to them, we'll, I'll show you a map. Uh, so they're coming out of Egypt and they go by way of Mount Sinai where God reveals himself and gives his laws. But they get to Kadesh Barnea. And at Kadesh Barnea, Moses says he commissions one representative of each of the 12 tribes to spy out the land. And so they go up there. And they come back and 10 of the spies say, well, yeah, uh, it's a fantastic land and you ought to see these grapes we saw. They're massive, but all the people are giants and we'll never never do it. And it's only Joshua and Caleb who give a, a, a report that says, no, with God's help, we can do this. But all the people listen to the 10 naysayers. And so they grumbled. One of the big themes of the book of Numbers is grumbling. And grumbling means we don't think you can do it, God. And that's the original sin, to doubt God's word. God says, I'll help you. They say, we don't think you can. And so the book of Numbers is a book about grumbling and it's a book about failure. It took the spies 40 days to spy out the land. God says, right, not one of the people that listen to the bad report will enter my land and you're going to wander 40 years one year for every day that it took them to have a look around and only the only people out of the generation who will enter the promised land are Joshua and Caleb. The rest of you will die there in the, in the wilderness. Well, the book of Numbers ends with them on the very brink of Jordan uh, over to the east of the Jordan River, which is the, the, uh, the border of the territory of, of Canaan, the promised land. Uh, and then the book of Deuteronomy Deuteronomy is a Greek way of saying second law. Deutero means two, nomos is law. Uh, It's not actually a particularly accurate description, but Moses does give the law again. And he explains in four quite long sermons what Israel needs to know if they're to make a good go of it in the promised land. And then Moses has disobeyed God, so he won't be going into the promised land either. And so he's giving last words to the people before they go in to begin the occupation. And so he preaches to a new generation because not one of them, well, Joshua and Caleb were the only two left that remembered Egypt. And so he's preaching to a new generation that has to come in and do what their parents failed to, which is to trust God and keep his laws. Have you ever thought all those laws are boring? You don't have to put your hand up. Uh, but they're remote from our experience aren't they it's an odd thing and if you do meet I, in my very first year of teaching up at Nil High School there was this bloke that everybody was scared of including me he was a teacher 
Um, and he, he had this persona about him that, that made him somewhat terrifying. He crafted it deliberately to keep the kids in line, um, but it worked on me too. Uh, and so it was the school cross-country day, and he and I were out monitoring the school cross-country to make sure that nobody cheated and that nobody fell over and all those sorts of things. So we, we had a little bit of downtime. And so he said to me, you're a Christian, are you? I said, that's right. He says, I read the Bible once, boring. <laughs> right. Now he said he felt he needed to read it because he wanted to regard himself as an essentially educated person. So he says it's an important book, but then he dismissed it as a boring book. Right? Now it's books, it's parts of the Bible like Leviticus that do that. I, I heard a, a bloke... Um, at Cairo Christian School no less he wasn't a teacher he was on the ground staff but I overheard him in a conversation one day saying he wished that God didn't put Leviticus and Revelation in the Bible because they're too hard right now I want to mount a little bit of a defense for the book of Leviticus all those laws are boring have you ever paid attention when they're telling you how to be safe on an aeroplane <laughs> right I remember a couple of years ago uh I had to go to Sydney for the day, right? This happens, never happens to me, but there's other people who make a living going to Sydney and back in a day. And so anyway, there's a part of me that says, these air hostesses, they're being so careful in explaining these rules, somebody's got to pay attention, so I think I will, right? Because everybody else is just reading their newspaper. But then there's another part of me that says, if something, wants to go, if something goes wrong, I want to know how to handle it, right? Now, I'm pretty sure... Because I think I was the only person paying attention. But I'm pretty sure if they said we're flying into a cyclonic winds, I reckon more people would have paid attention. Uh, the laws in Leviticus were not boring to anybody who realised that their life depended on it. Because if they don't keep the law, they're going to be booted out of the land the same way Adam and Eve were booted out of Eden. That's how important it is. It's not something you can afford to take lightly. So, the message of the Pentateuch. Um, I want to just deal with a thread that ties the whole five books together. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is Yahweh speaking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right? That's the first gospel statement in the Bible. Um, the rest of the Bible is the search for the serpent crusher. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to that land I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonours you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now I can remember where I was when I discovered how important those verses were. And it was after I'd started pastoring at community church. I was teaching this Bible overview course. I'd read those verses and they'd never really stuck in my head. But the rest of the Bible is the outworking of Genesis 12, 1 to 3. God is saying, I will restore my blessing to the earth. So God makes three promises to Abraham. He says, go to the land I'll show you. He says, I'll make of you a great nation. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what the rest of the Bible talks about. So what's God doing? He's restoring blessing to a cursed creation. Now, when you read anything, structure helps us to work out what's important and it helps us with meaning. Have you ever seen a sandwich? Right? A carefully made sandwich keeps all the contents together. 
right? Now, one of the techniques that the Bible writers used is sometimes called a sandwich construction. So you know how a sandwich works. There's bread and there's bread. And sometimes in a big one like that, there's bread in the middle, but there's filling in between, right? Well, think about the sandwich construction and have a look at this chart. Now, I've got it on your sheet there so you can refer to it. But there's the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Notice over here there's a little apostrophe. So we've got A, B, C, B apostrophe, A apostrophe. So according to the sandwich, Deuteronomy matches Genesis. Exodus matches Leviticus, uh, matches Numbers. Have a look. So what's Genesis about? You can boil it down and you can say it talks about the separation of Israel from the nations. It talks about the blessing being restored. It talks about seeing the land of Canaan. So Abraham, Isaac and Jacob all had a look at it. It talks about descendants in the land. What's Deuteronomy about? Pretty much the same. Except it's a further development. And this is when they're coming back to the land after they've been in slavery. But what's Exodus about? It's about Israel's desert journeys. It's about how they turned their back on God and apostatized. It's about how God sent plagues on them. It's about Pharaoh and the magicians. What's Numbers about? It's about Israel's desert journeys. It's about their apostasy and the plagues that God sent on them. It talks about false prophets and magicians. So there's a real parallel between the story of Exodus and Numbers. Now, according to the idea of the sandwich construction, when you find that in the Bible, what it's throwing a highlight on is the middle bit. So if we're right, I didn't make this up, and nor did Ray. Uh, Ray told me about it. But... uh, If we're right that the five books of the Pentateuch are constructed like a sandwich, that means Leviticus is the most important book. And so what's it about? It's about sacrifices, about cleanliness and holiness. Now, what went wrong in Genesis? People disobeyed God. Everything was looking good in the garden and then they disobeyed and they had to go because a holy God can't live with sin. The rest of the Pentateuch is about how do we get back to to Eden. And so the book of Leviticus is like the centrepiece. So Leviticus is about approaching God's house. How do sinners live with a holy God? We can divide Leviticus up into seven different sections. And again, the sandwich thing almost works. So the first eight chapters are about sacrifices. Chapters 9 to 10 are about priests and approaching God's house. Chapters 11 to 15 are about cleanliness cleanness and approaching God's house. Chapter 17 to 20, holiness of life and approaching God's house. Chapter 21 to 24, respecting what is holy and approaching God's house. 25 to 27 is life in the promised land, the new Eden. Which means the middle bit, chapter 16, is the focal point and it's about the day of atonement. When the high priest went into the most holy place of the tabernacle or the temple on one day of the year to make sacrifices for the whole nation's sins. The very heart of the Pentateuch, the middle middle part of the middle book, is about the Day of Atonement. What's the focal point of the Pentateuch? It's that sinners can only be safely living with a holy God through sacrifice. Sacrifice done according to God's laws. Now those laws aren't dull, are they? Because they're life. So we need to take them seriously. But that's, that's the structure of the Pentateuch. Five books where A matches A, B matches B, C stands alone. But right at the heart of C 
is careful instructions if they're to stay living in the promised land. So the message of the Pentateuch is bound up in this. In Leviticus 11, verse 44, one of a number of times this phrase turns up, Yahweh says, I am Yahweh your God, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. God's people need to be like God. They need to love what God loves. They need to hate what God hates. They need to order their way of life so that it reflects God's character. I am Yahweh, be holy because I am holy. Oh, but we don't want to be holy, Yahweh. All right, well, don't live with me then. Have it your way. Now, that's so important that Peter picks it up in 1 Peter. And he says to Christians, we need to be holy because God is holy. It says in the book of Hebrews, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Do you want to go to heaven? You need to be holy. It's just that important. You just cannot play fast and loose with God and his word. So holiness is a quality of life that stems from a relationship with God. Only God's holy and he transmits his holiness to people who live his way. Uh, And he requires it of all that he's chosen. That's why Adam and Eve couldn't stay any longer. They were evicted because God's holiness reacted against their uncleanness. And so in Exodus 19... God says to Israel, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Israel had a vocation. They had to do what Adam should have been doing, being a priest, being a representative, ministering in a holy place and guarding it. But Israel was supposed to manifest God's holiness to the world and they didn't do it very well. Now Peter again uses that language to describe Christians in 1 Peter chapter 2. So this theme of holiness, how are we going? you still with me? I reckon we can get this done in seven and a half minutes, right? This theme of holiness is one of the big themes that drive the whole Pentateuch. So Genesis 1, 31 and, and chapter 3, verse 8, God makes a, makes a good world. And it's a place that's perfect for God and humans to live in. Chapter 3, verse 8, we read there, what was God doing in the evening? having a little wander he was walking in the garden in the cool of the evening it suggests that that was his custom now it's using human language to describe the indescribable but what it pictures there is a relationship between god and his human creation adam and eve but then verse 9 says everything went wrong because they've listened to the serpent and now they know they don't really fit there anymore but that that describes the perfect environment of god and his people living together In chapter 3, verses 9 to 24, in the wake of the fall, we read that God put cherubim to guard the way back to the tree of life. Now, there's some ancient cherubim from uh, from Assyria. All of the cultures around there had equivalents for the cherubim. They weren't fluffy, cute little angels. They were usually represented as fearsome animals with wings, and very often they were shown as, as possessing weapons. Uh, if you've ever been to the London Museum, the British Museum in London, they have these massive great cherubim, two of them, that sat next to the king of Assyria's throne. They're about that high and the king sat between them and it meant to people, don't mess with the king or they're going to get you. Right, the cherubim were put in the way 
of the tree of life to guard the way back to it, which means that access has been denied to the presence of God. Um, in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and it's explained in chapter 15 as well, and chapter 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Now, covenant is a binding agreement. The closest we've got in our world is to a, a business partnership where the two parties sign and shake and say, I will do this, you will do that. In a, in a biblical covenant, the only person that can break the covenant is the humans because God always keeps his word. But in a biblical covenant... There's always the promise clauses, this is what I will do, and there's the clauses that explain what will happen if you default on the covenant, the penalty clauses. So God says, if you do this, I'll do this, this and this for you. If you don't do this, I will do that. And so God enters into a covenant with Abraham and he says, walk before me and be blameless. And so live in a way that makes it possible for you to enjoy God's presence. So along the way to Egypt, out of the, along the way to the promised land out of Egypt, in Exodus 25, God told Moses to make him a tent or a tabernacle or a sanctuary. And he says, I will live among my people. So Adam and Eve had forfeited God's presence. In Exodus 25, God says, I will restore my presence to people. What was lost in Genesis 3 verse 9, I will restore but it'll have to be ordered according to my purposes. And so the focal point of God's living with his people was this tent. Inside the tent was the most holy place, and in that was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant were two cherubim with their wings outstretched. What were the cherubim there to do? To guard it in a pictorial way, but they're to remind them that the way to Eden has been blocked. And the only way back into God's presence is to live God's way. And so in Exodus 25:22, Yahweh says to Moses, I will meet with you between the wings of the cherubim. Now, exactly how that works out, we don't know. But that's what God promised. He would meet with them. Uh, in, and Moses is God's representative in the, the holy place. Well, when you get to the book of Numbers, there's a fair bit of attention paid to the camping arrangements of Israel. And it's important to pay attention to that because this all represents what God's doing. So Numbers chapter 1 describes how the, the tribes at a camp with the tabernacle right in the middle of the campsite. And so you can see there the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. You can see over to the east, Issachar and Zebulun with Judah as the leading tribe, they camp to the east because the east is the direction from which Yahweh will enter. So that means that Judah is now the number one tribe. And then you've got Reuben, Gad and Simeon, Ephraim, Manasseh and Benjamin. But all the way around the tent are the Levites. And the Levites, remember what Adam had to do in the garden? He had to minister and guard it. The Levites now guard the tabernacle so that no one can get close to it. Because if they do, what will happen? They'll die. Because God's holiness is lethal to the unclean. And so the Levites are raised up to be this intermediary family of people that will help Israel maintain a relationship with Yahweh, the Holy One. And so Exodus 25, God says, I will dwell among them. And literally, he did. Now, as you look at, at all of these sorts of things, what you'll find is that there's a pattern of concentric rings of holiness. The most holy place 
Everything inside of it's made of gold. Outside of the most holy place, you'll find things are being made of silver and bronze. But outside of that, the materials become less and less costly, less and less impressive. This is to remind Israel and us that the closer you get to where God lives, the holier you need to be. And if you're not, stay clear. And that's what all those laws are designed to do. So if you look at the um, the tabernacle uh, from a 3D sort of point of view, that, that's how it looks. And again, you've got those concentric rings of holiness. That's what the tabernacle looked like. Very careful instructions are given. Did you notice that in reading Exodus? God says to Moses, do everything just as you've been shown on the mountain. And then all of the instructions are repeated. Almost verbatim, why would that be? Because Moses made everything exactly as he was instructed. He didn't leave anything to chance. right? So they used beautiful materials and it was all to impress on Israel the magnificence and and, uh, the wonder of God. Leviticus 10 is a very sobering passage because Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Levi, think we can do this too. And so they go into the holy place and offer unauthorised fire. What happens? They're consumed because they did what they shouldn't have done. And so the message is, don't mess with God. He's holy and you're not. Stay within the bounds of the laws that he's given you. They were consumed for disobeying God. And then in chapter 16, God says to Aaron, you can't come in whenever you want. Come in on the one day, and that's the day of atonement. So Exodus 15 in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 23, God says, I'm going to establish the people in a new Eden. All of the descriptions of the land make it sound Edenic, ideal. It's Eden revisited. All they need to do is to walk in his ways and he will walk among them. In Deuteronomy 30, here's the warning clauses. They're at various points, but here's a representative one. If they rebel, then like Adam and Eve, they'll be cursed and evicted. And so this is life and death for them. If they want to live in a land and enjoy a harmonious relationship with God, if they want him to enjoy his blessing and his protection, if they want to live in a world in which there will be no poverty, they need to live by his rules. And so Yahweh says it's life and death. And he says, choose life. Now here's a little pattern that you can see. The very end of the book of Exodus chapter 40 verse 35 God's glory comes into the tabernacle and Moses can't enter the tent in Leviticus chapter 1 the very next verse Yahweh speaks to Moses from the tent but in Numbers 1 Yahweh speaks to Moses in the tent can you see the transition and what that means is Moses is living by Leviticus he couldn't in Exodus he's spoken to from the tent and then he's spoken to in the tent Leviticus has done its work with Moses. So Leviticus shows how to live safely with Yahweh's holiness. Now this is something that that I find difficult to understand. I think Australians would find impossible to understand, but we need to get our heads around it. Yahweh is good and terrifying. He's amazing in his ability and his power and his strength, And he wants to live with people, but it's not safe for an unclean people to be with him. In fact, it's impossible. So in Habakkuk it says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. So when 
people talk about God, they talk about him flippantly. I met a, an old man at a... I was doing some music at a, a men's mission in the middle of Melbourne once. And this fellow came up to me after just to talk about the music and all sorts of other things. And um, he said, oh, I was talking to God the other day. He said, get out on your knees. He said, no, I'll stand up and talk to you man to man. Well, I think the grog had got to him. But no one gets to talk to God man to man. Gough Whitlam. I remember Gough Whitlam. Some of us remember Gough Whitlam, Labor Prime Minister from 72 to 75. He was a famous atheist. And somebody said, what will you do if you meet God? He says, I'll address him as an equal. This is what, that's just so far from understanding who God is. Uh, just preposterous and, and arrogant. And um, God won't be mocked. But the book of Leviticus shows us how sinful people can live with a holy God. Um, Deuteronomy 32 verse 47 says, It's no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. Now, a friend of mine gave me a good image for this. He used to do schools work and he'd talk about God and he'd talk about God's laws to kids as he went around. And he he used to say to them, how many of your kids here got a dog? And so there'd be a few who identify themselves as dog owners. And he said, what do you need to do to look after your dog? And so they'd say, oh, you know, have a kennel, you know, feed it regularly, bath it occasionally, give it some exercise. He says, you live on a highway. What do you need then? They say, oh, you need to have a fence. Right, to keep the dog from going out onto the busy highway. The Levitical law is like a fence around human sinfulness. We're all like dogs that if we had a chance would run onto the highway. But the Levitical law is like a fence around human sinfulness. Says that that's really not a good idea. Right? It tells us who God is, who we are, and what it takes if we're to live as God wants us to, with him. Because God says, I will make my dwelling among them. They shall be my people and I will be their God. God wants a relationship with people. We don't have to twist his arm. He wants it. But he knows that his holiness is lethal to the impure. So he sets a fence around things that make it possible for people like us to know him at all. The Christians, a Christian approach to law, it's a very complex thing. We haven't got time to talk about all the dimensions of it. But just very simply, in Galatians 3, 24 and 26, Paul says the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that the faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The law was put in for a particular point of time until it had done its job now paul uses the word guardian there and the greek word for a guardian was a pedagogue and these days that's still a word that gets used in terms of education Uh, it's become a synonym for a teacher a teacher is a pedagogue but back in the ancient greek days the pedagogue wasn't a teacher he was a slave that took the child to school and you'll see there the pedagogue sitting behind the student as he's taught his Greek words and he's about to go into his music lesson and the pedagogue has a stick in his hand and he's ready to whack the kid if he stops paying attention. So Paul says, the Greeks had a saying, a child learns through the seat of his pants or perhaps the seat of his toga or whatever. But, uh, um, but the pedagogue didn't do the teaching. He had to escort the child to and from and he had to keep the kid alert while the instruction was happening. And so Paul says the law was our pedagogue. The law took us from where we were, it brought us to the teacher 
And it made sure we're paying attention. But now Paul says that job has been done because Jesus has come. But that doesn't mean we get to live any old way. We can't, we can't just sort of disregard these laws because they tell us who God is. But Romans 8 puts it this way. There, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according not to the flesh but according to the spirit. So the law showed us that we need we needed a better sacrifice than any that a human could offer but now that jesus has come and offered the full sacrifice of himself and he's given us his spirit the spirit makes us want to obey god from the heart the spirit transforms our thinking and our will to the point where we want to do what god wants as, as a as gesture of, of volition and so there's a whole new relationship with the law as a result of what jesus has done so there we go how's that That'll do for now, right? Are there any questions? Yeah, Nathan. Um, I was just kind of thinking, like, one of the things that's, I guess, difficult to understand and easy to misunderstand in the law is the idea of cleanness and uncleanness yeah. and how that relates and is different to sin and holiness. That's a very good point, yeah. Um, you make a few comments on that? Yeah, I can. I'll try anyway. Nathan's pointed out that cleanness and uncleanness is not the same as being sinful, right? But so if you dis, if you deliberately disobey God's law or if you unintentionally break God's law, that's sin, right? Sin means transgression. It means stepping outside of the way that God has said. But there are certain conditions that make a person unclean, which makes them unfit for presence, the presence of God. But if they attend to certain tasks or wait a certain period of time then their period of uncleanness goes now quite how to explain the difference between uncleanness and sin is a bit complicated but life is made up of two great realities there's life and there's death we got that there's cursing and there's blessing the theory with cleanness is that anything that tends more towards death than life makes you unclean. And so, for instance, women who discharge blood for their menstrual period, right, they're unclean, not because they're a woman, but because that flow of blood represents something that is tending towards death. Uh, There's a range of other things that that have that, that sort of tendency about them. And so the law was given to remind people that they live between these two poles. And is it easy to forget God's laws? We're told that we need to have them written on our hearts, but I find it very easy to forget them when it's convenient for me, right? And so the Israelites were given all sorts of different ways of remembering, even down to having tassels on their garments, right? Why you got those tassels on your coat, Dad? Oh, they remind me of God. Uh, why do we only plant one sort of seed in our, in our, in our fields? dad because there's only one god there's nothing inherently sinful about planting two lots of seeds in you in your paddock why don't we eat a a goat cooked in its mother's milk because that's anti-creational and all of these things are reminders that there is one god 
not all the gods of the nations, just one God, and we need to live his way, right? Uh, so cleanness and uncleanness is a way of reminding us that coming into God's presence is not a walk in the park, it's not a pushover. It's something that needs to be attended to carefully. Cleanness and uncleanness speaks about the fact that life is lived between the poles of life and death and things that tend towards more towards death or remind us of our mortality are represented in a way that says, no, at the moment you can't go into God's presence. That's one of the reasons why disabled people couldn't be a servant in the, in the temple. Right? They were allowed to eat the temple offerings, but they couldn't actually go into the, the tabernacle and the temple, not because they were inherently evil, but because their deformity reminded more of the curse than of the perfection of God's original created order. And so it was therefore inappropriate. Right, so does that help? Is that, do you, have, you, have you got any thoughts on the subject? Right, yeah, but it is an important distinction because sometimes people get really cross about that. How come when you've had a baby girl, it's, you're unclean for twice as long as if you've had a baby boy, right? I, I, sometimes we, we don't really know the answer. There's certain aspects of the law that we can't fully explain. Why shouldn't they eat shellfish? You know, um, uh, there's aspects of those sorts of things there's been various theories but God never actually says but here's, here's a tip from me if you don't understand it just do it anyway um, because God knows better than I do and um, so yeah. but thanks Nathan <laughs> uh, but they're, they're good things yeah Vicky Should Adam have ensured there was no serpent? Probably. I think that's part of the story. Because uh, the serpent came in from somewhere else. Here's another thing that's a little bit hard. I still haven't fully got my head around it, which should be no surprise because there's a lot to get your head around in the Bible. But Adam had to extend Eden. Uh, Eden was a fixed location. It wasn't. It's not like the whole earth was the Garden of Eden. Uh, Eden was a particular location and the serpent came from somewhere we don't know where into Eden it seems but he knew enough about God's ways he said did God really say so somehow or another he'd worked out the instruction that God had given to Adam and Eve that they could eat from any any tree in the garden except for that one uh, but yeah, probably Adam had failed in his, his guarding of the holy space the, the, the most important thing to remember about Eden is that it's holy space it's, the, it's like the original temple. And so when you read about the construction of the tabernacle and when you read about the construction of the temple over and over, the decorations are, are trees and fruit and, and other things that remind us. But what, when we read about Eden, we read that it was full of gold and, and, and precious gems and it had rivers running through it. And so when you read about the temple, there's water and there's precious stones and it's to remind us of Eden. And when you get to Ezekiel, there's a river running out of the temple which reminds us of Eden. And then Jesus in John 8 says uh, when the spirit comes he's, he's going to be like a river flowing out of your heart. Um, a little Eden. But how does the Bible end? Back in the garden. 
So I think it was Peter Jensen from Sydney who says he can sum the Bible story up garden to garden with a battle in between. <laughs> right? Um, but we, we end up. But yeah, I th- more than, it's, it's like whenever I think sanctuary, I always think, you know, somewhere that kangaroos are safe. Uh, the Heelsville Sanctuary, right? But that sanctuary means holy place. Sanctuary is the Latin word for holiness. So a saint is a sanctified person. Um, so Eden is a sanctuary where a holy God can live with his people so long as they don't sin. Uh, and the, ser- the rest of the Bible is a search for going back to living with a holy God. And in the end, you know, the, the, the access is enabled again through the Lord Jesus because he pays the price of sacrifice sacrifice of his life yeah so yeah i think adam should have kept the snake out yeah yeah mal it's probably happy to do that it's probably related to what biggie mentioned we at the outset we spoke about after the sixth day it was good it wasn't good it was very good we've been using words it didn't mention the word perfect and god created the um the world and it was it not perfect the word perfect not used because mankind was there with capabilities uh, or the autonomy to do so uh, I teach in sport um, practice doesn't make perfect perfect practice makes yeah. perfect never practicing the wrong thing often yeah. often You've got to practice the right thing. Yeah. And do it. Yeah. Practice. So, with man, with mankind, with with the potential to um, sin, God did not make the world in six days perfect. He made it very good. Yeah. Um, we we probably got to be careful. We don't overpress those words because you know back when I was a teacher, um, you know, A was excellent, B was very good, C was good, D was satisfactory, and E was fail. Right. So. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, but we got to, so, you know, kids would say to me, oh, what was, you know, this girl said to me once, last year I get, used to get A's and B's and you only give me C's and D's. And so I said, well, yeah, C's a pretty good score, you know, it means good, you know, but good seems short of excellent. But in, in biblical language, to say it was very good is as good as it gets. So the idea of perfection, it, it's not falling short of perfection. But was it very, what was it very good if, if, if there was a potential? I, I don't think there's any suggestion that, that there's a potential for anything other than... Yeah, yeah. Like, completely as it should be at that point. Uh, now, there's, there's really big issues. How is it possible for Adam and Eve to sin and all those sorts? And we haven't really got time to go into that. In a perfect world, where did the snake come from? There's all, And we're not told. And so people have come up with answers and all that sort of stuff and a lot of it's conjecture but as I say I think the real focus of Genesis it starts off by saying to the Israelites the God that's leading you out of Egypt is the God that made the world he's the God that made all the things that your neighbours have been worshipping as gods so they're not gods because they're made but he's the one who is unmade who made everything and so creation is dealt with swiftly so that we can get onto the story of of Israel 
And Israel is God's means of restoring perfection, the good creation, through the descendant of Abraham, who ends up becoming a descendant of David, who is actually the world's true king, who is actually God himself. So um, you know, I think that the idea of those first chapters of Genesis is to say that the world is as good as God wanted it to be and, uh, and, and to, to ramp it up from good, good, good. Well, that's, that's, but then it's very good. And that seems significant. And the next time the word good is used, it's not good for a man to be alone. right? So God's going to do something about that too. Um, yeah, so I don't think there's any suggestion no, of... Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Peter. You mentioned at the start about uh, God created man in his own image. Yeah. In the image of God, he created um, uh, man and woman. Yeah. Um, Martin Isles, in a recent... Uh, sermon that he gave, um, he highlighted Genesis 5, where it talks about Adam, when he was 130, he had a son called Seth, yep. who he created in his image, yeah. not God's image, in Adam's image. Yep. And from then, that we, it helps explain um, uh, how, how we've inherited this in nature from Adam. Uh, although we still created God's image, we've also inherited this sin nature. Yeah. Uh, and it sort of explains it there in chapter 5. Yeah. Well, th- then I think the same is pretty much said of Noah after the flood. Uh, yeah, so... You know, I haven't really got much more to say about that, you know. Uh, yeah. 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 Just one other one. Yep. Um, you know, Moses didn't enter the promised land. Yep. Um, I can never quite understand the reason given in the Bible as to what wrong Moses did yeah. that offended God to the point that he would say well, he never enter the promised land. We're not actually told. Uh, you, you can, you can, there's three, there's three major conclusions, yeah. But look, my, my own view on it, uh, is that in the book of Exodus they grumbled because there was no water and, and, and Moses speaks to God and he says, strike the rock and water will come out. So Moses struck the rock. And then the next time God says to him, speak to the rock. And Moses struck the rock. And so God says, you haven't shown your... You, um, uh, yeah, he, he said, um, you haven't shown me as holy in the sight of Israel. Right. And so it looks at my... The conclusion at the moment would be that God, that Moses didn't take him at his word, that he went back to the other, he went back to the other way of doing things when he should have just spoken to the rock. It was almost like he was showing off. Look, you Israelites, I can make water come out of the rock. I'll give it a whack. You know? But there's something in in First Corinthians chapter ten. Uh, Paul actually says that the rock is Christ. Now, quite how that works out. I'm not entirely sure, but there's there's something mysterious about that. If, if the rock is Christ, and I can't explain this, but then he probably shouldn't have taken taken a stick to it. Yeah. But but I think the simplest explanation is that he didn't honour God as holy. He didn't take him at his word. Yeah. But but. Um, God had to discipline Moses for that, and so he wasn't going to let he let him see the promised land. Um, 
Of course, Moses has set foot in the promised land because he was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Elijah when Jesus... Yeah, so... Yeah. But that's another thing. Yeah. Between Adam and Jesus, either wasn't Moses was there. So. Uh, no, because he was on trial. He was from the, the trial of Levi. Yeah. So Jesus came to Judah. Yeah. Well, you've all done very, very well for a warm Sunday afternoon. So, you've done nothing else. So, thank you for your guests. Thank you. Thank you for being here. 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 Thank you for being make us more and more like Jesus, so please help us to put a high value on that. Uh, we ask that you would cause us to love what you love and to hate what you hate, to desire deeply to live in ways to please you. And uh, we, we pray that you would help us not to make light of your holiness and of the high cost that Jesus paid to, to tear open the temple curtain and to make an access in your very presence uh, through his blood. So we thank you that Jesus is that, that one perfect and complete sacrifice uh, that makes it possible for us to know you and to call you Father and to look forward to living with you forever in the new week. Uh, so please inspire us with these thoughts and help us to continue to you know, grapple with your word each day, to take it to heart and to, to read it and believe it and to live in its life. We pray all these things for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm really encouraged to see so many of you here, so good on you, thanks for coming. And uh, we'll do another one once we get to the history books in a little while.